Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. I am back, and uh, as always, you can find me throughout the week on the Facebook page, uh, and you can also find this and other episodes as podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, and other fine purveyors of audiophiles. Um, so I am trying to get back into updating the Facebook more often, and I do try and put things there that are more visual. So there have been some pretty interesting things lately that I have tried to post there. And there's a couple from um, today that I will post, including some ancient artwork and um, the what we now believe to be the oldest example of a figurative tattoo on a mummy that has been sitting around for about 100 years and nobody noticed it. It's a little bit hard to see. Um, it takes a little bit of imagination, so I can see why people might have missed it. Um, but it's very cool, and I'm always particularly interested in um, the history of tattooing. I am very interested in tattoos, and um, I have a couple, uh, but just a couple. And um, so, yeah, I think that's really interesting. And it was one of the things that I thought was really interesting about Otzi, the um, Iceman, is that he had all of these really interesting tattoos. Um, and so, yeah, there's just been a lot of interesting tattoo history lately uh, that we haven't really talked about because it's, it seems so much more a visual thing. Um, there is also a recent exhibit uh, that I always feel so jealous when I watch these little snippets about these exhibits at the British Museum. They just had one about Scythians, who were a sort of central um, Eurasian steppe people. And they were really amazing horsemen uh, and women. And uh, they were really fascinating. And they were very into tattooing. And so you can see um, some of the patterns that people have been able to discern from their remains. Anyways, let's get into tonight's topics. And so I wanted to start out with some relative good news. Researchers at the CDC believe that we are entering peak flu season, which may not sound good, but basically it means that we have gotten to the point where the uh, number of cases is leveling off. So they're not yet ready to declare that we have reached the peak. Uh, there are still kind of in the process, they want to let it go for probably another week before they declare it specifically. Um, but it does, like I said, uh, seem that cases are beginning to level off. This flu season has been particularly deadly. So getting beyond that peak will be a really incredibly uh, helpful thing. It's definitely an encouraging sign, said CDC spokesperson Kristen Norland uh, to CNN. But Half of the country is still experiencing high activity, and it's still widespread everywhere. So we're still in the thick of it. And in fact, there were 13 pediatric deaths attributed to the flu two weeks ago, bringing that total to 97. Now, it's expected that the number will eventually top the 148 pediatric deaths from the 2014 to 2015 season, which was the previous most severe season in recent years. Now, while flu season generally lasts about 16 weeks and we are in week 15, the CDC suggests that this season will be longer than others. And despite some reports to the contrary, the flu vaccine actually has been relatively effective, 
Um, it's not been great against the most virulent uh, version. It's only about 25% effective, but even that 25%, I've talked about this on several occasions, so I don't want to belabor the point too much, but even those low numbers still save lives. Um, but it's been especially helpful at preventing flu in young children and preventing non-H2N3 infections. Um, and so it's been really helpful for uh, for young children. It's been really, really effective for them. And in fact, the majority of pediatric deaths have been in children who have not been vaccinated. And so again, um, I cannot stress enough how important it is to get your own vaccinations, to get vaccinations for the people you love, especially for young people and for the elderly. Um, vaccines just save lives. It's it's just the truth. Uh, they don't do any of the weird things that people say they do. Um, autism is a, an extremely complex and um, multifaceted disease that has nothing to do with whether or not a child is vaccinated. And it's just, it's very important to get these vaccines because these diseases do kill. They can kill, they can really hurt you, they can really hurt children, and there's just no reason not to um, vaccinate. Vaccinations are one of the single greatest achievements of medical science, period. Okay, so let's talk now for a moment about another major killer in this country, which is gun violence. Um, I obviously have been um, unfortunately busy the last couple of weeks, and I haven't had a chance to talk to the, about this yet. And I wish I did never have to talk about this. Um, it's very frustrating. Um, and so I you know, would rather not, but I feel that it's important because you really need to be able to separate your emotions from the science um, or separate the science from your emotions, I should say more uh, specifically. And so new research by James Allen Fox, professor of criminology, law and public policy at Northeastern University, and his doctoral student, Emma Friedel, suggest that school shootings are actually less frequent than they were in the 1990s. And they suggest that turning schools into fortresses is not an ideal solution to the problem. Now, I think many of us might agree with that, but some of us probably do have that sort of knee-jerk reaction that we should put metal detectors in and have armed deputies and or armed teachers and things like that, but the research really doesn't support that idea. So they looked at data from school shootings between 1992 and 2015. They used government and nonprofit databases, including from the FBI, USA Today, and Everytown for gun safety. Now, there's been some debate about that last database and uh, whether their criteria for what a school shooting is is not overly broad. However, um, the researchers used a specific criteria in order to be counted. The incident needed to include four or more deaths by firearm, excluding the assailant. So they um, adjusted for that kind of uh, amb ambiguity in the data sets. 
And they found that four times as many students were killed in the 90s as are today. Um, And this is reported in The Intercept. And so Fox notes that drowning and bicycle accidents are far more common causes of childhood mortality. Of the approximately 56 million students who attend elementary and secondary schools in the country, around 10 per year are killed by firearms while at school. Now, the researchers are quick to point out, as am I, that they are not against gun reform, simply that they want the best information to be available to those who would see the recent shooting as an excuse for turning our schools into places full of metal detectors, armed police officers or armed teachers, and other measures meant to protect children, but which often make them feel less safe. And of course, one of the objections that I've seen, um, which resonates with me, is that arming more people in schools is what about the impact that this will have, especially on students of color who often already fear going to school and being shunted into the school to prison pipeline. Even with training and drills, teachers with guns will inevitably have accidents with those guns, as we'll see in a second. And some of those accidents could be fatal. A lot of the measures that people are suggesting, such as increased gun control or increased mental health services, those are great ideas that we should do in general for looking at gun violence in America or mental health in America. But mass murders are so rare that they should not be driving policy, Friedel says. If you change gun laws, you're likely not necessarily going to affect mass murders because they're such unpredictable events. But it's a worthwhile endeavor endeavor to work on changing gun laws in order to prevent more common incidents or single victim shootings, whether or not they occur at a school. And so um, I do just want to note here that the connection between mental health and um, guns is obviously fraught. Um, There are a lot of people who feel that talking about the two in conjunction is unfair to those with mental health issues. Um, And I think that in a lot of ways, I agree with that. However, obviously, people who have mental health issues who have ready access to guns, that's a problem. Um, But obviously, I don't think that there is good evidence to suggest that All of the people who commit crimes, especially these kinds of high profile crimes with guns, that they necessarily actually do have clinical mental health issues. Um, Many of them do, but many of them just have been inculcated into a lot of bad ideas. And that is not necessarily a mental health issue. Okay. So um, a 2016 review of data from the um, Population Reference Bureau shows that more adolescents die from suicide rather than homicide. And so while approximately 1,300 children die annually from gunshot wounds, 38% of those are suicide. And in fact, Friedel suggests that a better solution to the problem is not Again, in hardening our schools, which research has suggested does not actually make them any safer, but in proactive problem solving and actions that give students more individual care. If you're very concerned specifically about schools, there's a lot of different things we can do without engaging in 
target hardening, she said. It would be a better idea, for example, to increase the number of guidance counselors for schools or have smaller school sizes. Having more guidance counselors or having smaller groups of adults that are monitoring children and looking at how they're doing and looking at warning signs of possible disturbances in order to help mental health students' mental health, that's not just, oh, they're going to go shoot their school up. That could be, are they suicidal? Are they engaging in self-harm behaviors? Things like that, which are much more common. It's certainly a worthwhile goal to mitigate the damage from self-harming behaviors as much as possible. And so apparently, and I didn't actually know this, there is a huge shortage of guidance counselors in our school systems. And in fact, in 2014-15, the school-to-student counselor ratio was 482 students to one counselor, according to the American School Counselor Association, which is nearly twice the organization's recommended ratio. So as with many problems in this country, the real solutions include focusing more on individuals and their needs and less on flashy quick fixes. However, those flashy quick fixes are usually the ones that win the widest support, and therefore we will continue to limp along as best we can with less than ideal solutions. Um, and this is especially because this is such a uh, emotional idea of, you know, these school shootings, they seem so large when they happen at the time. And that's not to, you know, diminish the pain and suffering that these cause, but they are very rare occurrences. And I think that it's much more important to look at these sort of everyday occurrences and hope that maybe some of that will mitigate these sort of one-off uh, terrible tragedies. If we get kids into counseling, if we get kids into situations where they feel more comfortable, more safe, if we decrease access to guns overall, because access to guns in general is an issue, not just for school shootings, um, then I think that there are solutions out there that can really be worthwhile. Um, and so I mentioned before uh, about the idea that even trained teachers will inevitably have ac accidents. And so um, I wanted to tell you about this story, which... Uh, is where I get that idea from. Um, and so this is a semi-related story. A letter to the editor uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, reports on a study that looked at the reduction of firearm injuries during the NRA's annual convention. So Anupam B. Jenna of Harvard Medical School and Andrew Alensky of Columbia University report on their examination of emergency room visits and hospitalizations for firearm injuries during NRA conventions and during identical three-day windows at intervals of three weeks before and after convention dates from a national database of private insurance patients between 2007 and 2015. Now, the team hypothesized that firearm injuries would decline during the period of the convention because, contrary to the suggestion of the NRA, gun injuries affect not just inexperienced gun owners, but also experienced and trained gun owners. And this is exactly what they found. 
During NRA conventions, the average was 1.19 per 100,000 beneficiaries with a firearms-related injury, compared to 1.49 per 100,000 during the control intervals. And obviously, it's not a humongous reduction, but it's a statistically significant reduction. Now, reductions were largest in men living in the South and West, in states that are ranked in the top third of gun ownership rates overall, and among those in the states in which the rallies were held. Now, of course, part of the whole NRA thing is that uh, they're not doing a whole lot of actually using guns when they're at the convention. They're mostly looking at them and talking about them. So that's part of um, how this works. And um, they did find, however, that uh, criminality was unchanged between the three intervals. So gun-related violence, um, gun-related violence that was uh, not accidental, but was actually um, related to criminality, that didn't change. Because obviously there's not a lot of criminals going to NRA rallies, um, at least in that sense. Um, I have no idea what the makeup of the the amount of people who have criminal records. I have no idea. And I don't think that's particularly relevant. Um, But they did want to sort of stress that, you know, obviously, there were still um, firearms issues happening because there was still crime happening um, throughout the country. The authors note that these findings are consistent with reductions in firearm injuries occurring as a result of lower rates of firearm use during the brief period when many firearm firearm owners and owners of places where firearms are used may be attending an NRA convention. Our results suggest that firearm safety concerns and risks of injury are relevant even among experienced gun owners. Um, And so I thought that was a really cool analysis. Um, It was a really interesting idea to look at this. Um, And I like that it it really does show uh, that the NRA's uh, sort of party line that only inexperienced people have firearms accidents is definitely untrue. Okay, so this is um, kind of good news, bad news, this next story. Uh, It is a debunk. uh, And so the story sounds so good when you first hear it, until someone actually went and asked the people that it was supposed to be about, who said, Oh, no, that's not that's not what it is. So you've almost undoubtedly, if you're on the internet on a regular basis, uh, you have almost undoubtedly heard of or seen the specific post itself suggesting that Black Panther had helped boost the adoption of black cats. Now, the bad part is, is that that's not true. However, the good part is, is that even though traditionally it's been believed that black cats face greater challenges to adoption, uh, especially due to superstition, it's apparently not true. Um, And in fact, I think that I've probably reported on that uh, phenomenon at some point. So it's interesting to have um, the fact that it turns out, according to a representative from the ASPCA, that this is actually overall a myth as far as their numbers show. Um, Now, Black cats may still sometimes struggle. Uh, Apparently, some folks have even suggested that they're too hard to take selfies with. Um, But apparently, overall, they are doing just fine, according to uh, ASPCA statistics. So this, of course, makes it less painful to report um, that 
it is a myth that the movie has given them a significant boost. But it turns out that this is actually probably a good thing. So um, it was pointed out that once the release of Game of Thrones, uh, with the release of Game of Thrones, it actually led to a bump in husky adoptions, uh, which led to a subsequent rise in surrenders of said huskies to adoption centers when people realized how tough it can be to actually own a dog, no matter how adorable they may be. And oh goodness, they are adorable. <laughs> um but they're also a lot of work. And so um, whenever this sort of thing happens and people get a bump, you know, uh, Easter is coming up and there's always a bump in people buying their kids bunnies. And then they find out that bunnies can be grumpy. They can smell. They almost always smell. Um, and they are just generally not as adorable to own as they are to occasionally pet and look at um, in either a uh, pet store or a county fair kind of situation, that actually owning a bunny is not as glamorous as one might think. Uh, and so then again, you end up with a lot of surrenders and you end up a lot of people just sort of putting bunnies that were raised in uh, pet stores out on the street um, or in the back garden and saying, go forth. And it's not so great. Um, I actually have a friend who uh, walked outside one day and there was a bunny in her backyard that I'm almost positive it's all white. So that's generally not a uh, bunny that's going to have been a wild bunny. And she took it in and luckily she loves it. And um, it is very pampered now, but clearly someone just put their bunny out and said, good luck. Um, so clearly that is not a good thing to do. So hopefully, um, even though it's a great sounding story, uh, people are not going out and buying black cats only to uh, soon realize that having cats, again, a lot of work, um, less work than a dog, but still, um, as someone who has cats, it's still a lot of work, uh, especially cat boxes, no fun. <laughs> okay, so let us move on. And um, so I just wanted to briefly mention this because it is something that I talk about on a regular, regular basis. Uh, there's a study reported in Scientific Reports on 21 years of field data uh, from 1996 to 2016, which is concerning the use of genetically engineered maize or corn, um, which has pest repellent uh, additives. And so the study found that, unsurprising to most agronomists and plant scientists, that GE corn fortified with insect-resistant traits. Um, again, the study didn't look at all forms of GE corn, just those with insect-resistant traits. Um, so not, for instance, corn that was only Roundup ready. Um, but they found that it was not only equal to traditional cultivars, but actually superior in some ways. And so this was actually done by Italian researchers, but most of the data came from, well, the American Corn Belt, obviously, because uh, we are one of the biggest producers of corn, so it's not really surprising. And so they note that the results support the cultivation of GE maize, mainly due to enhanced grain quality and reduction of human exposure to mycotoxins. 
And so what they found was that yield was increased overall in GE samples, that they were less damaged, that there were less damaged ears overall, which is important because damaged corn can develop fungal infections, which can potentially lead to mycotoxin uh, exposure. And overall, GE samples had less mycotoxins and the rate of decomposition was greater. Um, so they, they decomposed quicker than uh, traditional cultivars. There was also no significant difference in grain quality, nor in the lingon of stalks and or leaves. So this indicates that the corn is not significantly changed by the addition of insect-resistant traits, and therefore corn is corn, regardless of its origins. They also found that beneficial arthropods were not affected by GE corn, such as spiders, ground beetles, lacewings, and ladybugs. Now, beneficial parasitic wasps were reduced, but this is likely due to the reduction of corn rootworm, which is the pest for which the corn is generally resistant. And so just overall, this once again shows that GE corn is not a harm to humans or the environment and continues to be studied by plant scientists. So the next time someone says, oh, you know, nobody studied GEs, GE crops. Yes, they have over and 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 over again. Um, and so, yes. Um, and they continue to find that there is no difference as far as anything that they have tested for. And of course, there is always the possibility that in future we will find something that we didn't know but at the moment all things being equal corn is corn regardless of how it is created or cultivated okay so this next story is actually pretty amazing um because it's one of those stories where people have had a set of beliefs and um, you know, there, there is some uh, sort of cultural difference in the idea of whether or not you need scientific basis for a belief. Um, I obviously, as someone who comes from a very uh, Western paradigm, believe that, yes, it's great to believe something, but I want to know that it's true. And the way that I know that it's true is through science or through um, research and things like that. Whereas for other cultural traditions, knowing something might be true is because you've been told it by a trusted person or because it is the story of your people. And so um, I obviously uh, try and respect that, but I really want to be able to say, yes, the science backs this up. And so it turns out that this is a... Um, example of where science has come in and said, yes, your cultural beliefs are actually true, even though we totally didn't believe you for a very long time. So if you remember um, your uh, early uh, childhood histories of uh, first contact in the Americas, um, you probably remember that perhaps, maybe, um, that Christopher Columbus first ended up in the Caribbean. Um, he actually debatably might have made it to like the edge of Florida, but almost certainly really didn't make it to America at all. Um, he was in the Caribbean and um, mostly, and I think he might have hit uh, South America, but that's about it. Um, but anyways, he 
hit the Caribbean and he came across the Taino people. And uh, so the Taino culture uh, was present throughout the Caribbean in Puerto Rico, the Dominican Republic, Haiti, uh, or what is now these uh, places, um, the Bahamas, the whole region. And uh, traditionally, history suggests that they were then completely wiped from the face of the earth by disease and force. And so, therefore, the present population in the area has no um, Taino um, DNA, that that culture was completely wiped out, and then a new set of uh, peoples were brought in by the Spanish. Well, it turns out that Spanish conquistadors are once more not reliable narrators. <laughs> These indigenous communities were written out of history, says Jada Ben Torres, a genetic anthropologist at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, who studies the Caribbean's population history and has worked with native groups on several islands. They are adamant about their continuous existence, that they've always been on these islands, she says. So to see it reflected in the ancient DNA, it's great. So that DNA came from genetic testing on a thousand-year-old skeleton found in the Bahamas, which has shown that at least one modern Caribbean population can indeed trace its ancestry back to pre-contact indigenous populations. And so the skeleton was found at a site called Preacher's Cave, on Eleuthera um, in the Bahamas. And so interestingly, the, the cave was actually being excavate, excavated originally for a very different reason. Turns out that the first Europeans to set foot in the Bahamas were not in fact the Spanish, but rather a group of Puritans who took refuge there after a shipwreck. And so it was this group that the archaeologists were investigating. But as they dug in the cave, they found artifacts and remains of pre-contact individuals as well. And so this was great news for Hans Schroeder, uh, who is an ancient DNA researcher at the National Natural History Museum of Denmark and the University of Copenhagen, who had been hoping to find some ancient remains from this very area to test for DNA. Now, he knew it was a long shot because DNA actually degrades more quickly in hot, humid climates, and it also degrades over time just in general. And so several ancient skeletons had been found in the cave, and so five teeth were extracted in order to be tested. And it turns out that only one was still able to be sequenced, a tooth from a woman who lived around a thousand years ago. But that one sequence is incredibly significant. It gives researchers the most complete Taino genomic evidence yet found and helps confirm archaeological findings that suggested that the Taino people were actually related to the peoples of northern South America who uh, spoke, and in some cases still speak, um, Arawakan languages. And so similarities in ceramics and tools between the two populations had already been assigned to archaeologists that they shared a common origin. And what the evidence suggests is that around 2,500 years ago, a group of people from the area moved into the Caribbean islands. 
Interestingly, they didn't simply settle on the islands that they reached, but rather fanned out and continued to move back and forth between the islands. This can be seen in the DNA as well, because the woman, the woman's DNA is not indicative of inbreeding from a small, isolated population. It looks like an interconnected network of people exchanging goods, services, and genes, says William Schaefer, a bioarchaeologist at Phoenix College who helped excavate the remains in Preacher's Cave. Now, while it's known that populations from Puerto Rico, Cuba, and other Caribbean islands have native roots along with European and African ancestry, it's long been thought that those native peoples were transplanted as slaves from other parts of the Americas. But Schroeder found that the Taino women's genome and that of modern Puerto Ricans, um, for instance, uh, he found that their DNA showed signs of being descended from an indigenous population closely related to the ancient woman. And so basically they said that it's kind of like um, that they're, they're basically descended from what could be considered a cousin of this particular woman. And so this is a Again, for me, a great example of how science can help validate the live, the lived experience of populations. Unfortunately, it does often take this kind of hard science to change the minds of those who have written the history and are perfectly content with its composition. All right, let us take a break and we will come back and talk a little bit more about archaeology and then move on to other items. So hang on for just a moment. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. My name is Amanda Messer. I'm 17 years old and I'm a student from Turner's Falls High School. Billboard bodies. Does anybody really look like that? Someone could be flipping through a magazine, looking at that pretty girl or that buffed out guy, then go gag themselves. We need to love our looks for what they are, other than what people say they need to be. People can have beauty no matter what they look like. Beauty only comes from the, from the heart, soul, and mind. Most magazines emphasize the outside when it's the inside that really matters. 
and change in society would be most ideal for everyone. Sassy! Today's episode, Bobcat in the Cave. Oh, nuts! There's a bobcat in this cave! Save us, Sassy! You will, but first you'd like to stress the importance of cat adoption? Over 5 million cats go into animal shelters every year and they need to be adopted? Help us, Sassy! Why bother? We'll just get into more trouble tomorrow? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the shelterpetproject.org. Remember, adopt. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's Wednesday evenings at 7 p.m. Join me, DJ Vinyl Scratch, on the warm heart of Africa. From Cape Town to the Congo, Marrakesh to Mogadishu, and to the New World and beyond, we explore the best in pop music from Africa and the Afro diaspora all across the globe. Once again, that's 7 to 9 p.m. every Wednesday, only on Valley Free Radio. You are listening to Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM. I'm Mayor David Narkowitz, and I support Northampton's community radio station. Okay, we are back. And again, we are going to do one more story about archaeology. And so this is a really exciting one again. Um, This is again about ancient peoples of the Americas. So back in January, a diver exploring the underwater caverns in Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula near Tulum discovered a small passage with a big significance. It turns out that the diver had found a long-hoped-for connection point between the Sac Actum and Dos Ojos cave systems. So knowing that they are connected, researchers can now formally classify them as the longest underwater cave system in the world at a staggering 216 miles long. And so while this is cool merely from a geological standpoint, uh, it is even more exciting from an archaeological perspective. And so archaeologist Guillermo Dianda a researcher at Mexico's National Institute of Anthropology and History and director of the Great Maya Aquifer Project, believes that this will open up new areas of an already amazing series of archaeological finds, which is now collectively known as Sac Actum. Uh, And so Dianda's team has already uncovered nearly 200 sites within the system, which contain archaeological remains. They have found... Mayan altars, human remains, and even the fossils of extinct animals such as the giant sloth. This is probably the most important submerged site in the world, specifically because of the amount of archaeological material, the state of preservation, and the big chronology it involves. 15,000 years before our time through colonial times, Deanda told Live Science. We are overwhelmed with the amount of archaeology, he continued. We are starting the documentation and registration of the archaeological sites, but is going to take years. 
we know that there's a big potential for research because preservation in these places is amazing. Now, of particular interest would be to find wood, cloth, or paper materials that do not survive on land, but can in these uh, very well-preserving, watery areas. And in fact, one of the other um, cenotes, which is um, sinkholes or blue holes, um, one of the other ones is the only place where they've ever found Maya textiles. They didn't find any in the jungle because, of course, jungles um, have very acidic uh, soil and obviously just a lot of humidity. And so anything like paper or textiles is just going to quickly rot away. And so these are really the only places to find those kinds of materials. But luckily, the Maya were really, really, really interested in uh, caves and uh, cenotes. And um, so you may know about this, that the Maya uh, believed they were passageways to the underworld, and the underworld was extremely important to their ritual life. They believed that humans were created in the underworld, and it was important to journey to these portals in order to make sacrifices and worship. And so not only is the cave system filled with Maya artifacts and remains, um, it has other remains as well. In fact, um, some of the earliest remains um, of humans in the area have been found in this um, cave system. And also uh, the remains of at least 42 sets of animals, uh, of animal remains from 13 different late Pleistocene species lie within the cave including, uh, again, uh, giant sloths and uh, cave bears and other animals like that, including um, an ancestor of elephants. And so uh, part of the reason for that is that back during the Ice Age, the uh, sea level would have been much lower. And so these caves would have actually been uh, probably at ground level. And so they wouldn't have been filled with water. They would have been actual caves. And so that's why so many animal remains would be found in there. Now, now we can know what is the relative distance between one discovery and the other. And we can try to reconstruct the activity of animals and humans and how they are behaving, Deanda noted. Now, of course, as with many sites like this, the area is increasingly threatened by development and is, of course, vulnerable to looting, which is one of the uh, worst and most prevalent issues in archaeology. Um, But Danda and his team are hoping uh, to have the site declared a UNESCO World Heritage Site, which would give it a boost in order to uh, actually be better protective. And so uh, scientific research can also help discover more and more about recent art and artifacts. And so uh, shifting gears a little bit now, researchers from Northwestern University have recently examined several works by Pablo Picasso in order to discover secrets about their composition and history. So one team was able to trace the exact composition of five bronze casts to a specific foundry in World War II era Paris. Another found a painting hiding beneath the famous blue period masterpiece La Miseruse Accroupie. Now, using a non-invasive technique called X-ray fluorescent spectroscopy, 
they were able to discover that the canvas was actually reused by Picasso and originally featured a landscape painted by an unknown artist. And they can actually see that Picasso incorporated the landscape's forms into the figure of the woman. And so the landscape would have been... um, the the original canvas would have been 90 degrees to the way that Picasso painted his figure. And so he actually also changed the painting halfway through. And so he originally had painted the woman's arm, uh, but then decided to cover it with a cloak instead. And using the same technique, the first team found that the bronzes came from the Emile Robecci foundry in southern Paris, between approximately 1941 and 1942. Now, Rebecca was a collaborator of Picasso, so this was not terribly surprising, but it was still important to be able to actually pinpoint where the bronze came from. And so I think it's really exciting um, how modern technology can be applied um, in interesting ways to learn more about works of art from all eras of human history. And um, in fact, one of the uh, articles pointed out that even the uh, British Museum, I believe it was, has its own um, scanning electron microscope. And so a lot of really interesting modern um, technologies go into museum studies and into um, restoration. And um, if you're interested in that in particular, there is a great series by the British Museum where they actually have a series of videos where they go through the restoration technique used in order to um, restore a particular artifact. Um, So they did one that was a Roman era glass beaker, um, which would have been for a, um, would have actually been a funeral um, container, a funeral vessel. They did another for a um, Tibetan tapestry um, or a, a, um, I think it was Tibetan. It was either, I believe it was Tibetan, but a tapestry. Um, and they, that one was really fascinating because they had to take it off of an old backing and they showed how they did that. They also showed a lot of how the technology of color matching and using fluorescent, um, fluorescence in the, um, natural fibers to figure out what different, um, stitching was used and it was just really really fascinating Um, and they've done some others as well and I highly recommend that if you're interested in um, the intersection of art and science. But let's move on for tonight um, and talk about particle physics for a bit which is you know very uh, relevant to this whole thing because a lot of this is based on uh, sort of particle physical Uh, technologies that we have used our knowledge of uh, particle physics to create things like lasers and x-ray spectroscopy and things like that. Now, you may not have heard about this, um, even though uh, one story about it had this wonderfully hyperbolic headline that I just, I have to read to you because I just thought that is so adorable. Uh, this bizarre overstuffed atom is the turducken of the microscopic world. Um, And so that was the headline. Um, And so um, what it is, is that scientists have recently created what is called a Rydberg atom. 
And so uh, basically, this is a huge atom that actually has other atoms inside of it. Uh, and so in order to do this, the team took a collection of strontium atoms and cooled them to just above absolute zero. This causes the atoms to basically cease moving and become what's called a Bose-Einstein condensate. And so that's a state where basically the atoms are acting more as a single atom. And so what they did, but they're still individually there. And so they shined laser light at one of the atoms, giving it extra energy. Now, usually this would mean that the electrons would jump to a higher orbit further away from the nucleus. However, in this state, the electron's entire outer orbit actually swells to create a Rydberg atom. This huge atom now becomes large enough to engulf many of the other atoms in the condensate. And so when the condensate is extremely dense and the Rydberg atom highly energized, it can actually fit up to 170 other strontium atoms within its orbit. The average distance between the electron and its nucleus can be as large as several hundred nanometers. That is more than a thousand times the radius of a hydrogen atom, Joachim, Joachim uh, Bergdorfer, a theoretical quantum dynamic researcher at the University of Theoretical Physics at the Vienna University of Technology, said in a statement. What's even more interesting is that the atoms are actually neutral, so that they only have the slightest impact on the electron's path. And so because of the weak interactions, the total energy of the system is lowered even more. This causes the atoms to bond with electrons in the Ryberg atom. It is a highly unusual situation, said study co-author Shuhei Yoshida, also a physicist at the Institute of Theoretical Physics. Normally, we are dealing with charged nuclei, binding electrons around them. Here, we have an electron binding neutral atoms. And while this may not lead tomorrow to a new technology, it's always fascinating to manipulate the building blocks of matter to see how they can be arranged and rearranged in order to better understand the nature of the universe. And so that is always something that I am really interested in. Um, I don't always understand it all uh, because, you know, if you think that you understand all of theoretical physics, you are lying because um, a lot of it is deeply unintuitive. Um, but I think it's important to try and understand as much of it as possible. Okay, let's wrap up tonight, though, with a story about a fan favorite, I hope, and a show favorite, the Tardigrade. A new species of tardigrade has been found in a Japanese parking lot, and it's even weirder than other tardigrades, which is a really impressive feat. So the new species, Macrobiotis shanaicus, is the 168th species found just in Japan. So there are tons of these guys all over the place. Uh, and so Kazuharu Arakawa a researcher who studies tardigrade molecular biology at Keio, Keio University discovered the new species in a sample of moss that he scraped from the parking lot of his apartment building <laughs> in Sirocco City uh, near the Sea of Japan. 
most of the tardigrade species were described from mosses and lichens. Thus, any cushion of moss seems to be interesting for people working on tardigrades, Arakawa told Live Science. But, he said, it was quite surprising to find a new species around my apartment. And so Arakawa sampled moss, samples moss, he sees, around town pretty much as a matter of routine. But it was this sample that proved to be particularly special. The tardigrades from this sample were actually able to survive and, more importantly, reproduce in a laboratory environment. And that generally doesn't happen. Usually we can run experiments where we poke them and prod them and they come back to life, but they don't generally survive long term and they don't generally reproduce. So he sequenced their DNA and found that it was unique after consulting tardigrade expert Lukau's Mikalczyk of Jagiolian University in Poland. And so uh, these tardigrades also have another unique feature, which is that they have the ability to live on algae. Other species in the genus Macrobiotis are actually carnivorous and survive on even smaller animals called rotifers. Now, you may have seen rotifers, again, if you cast your... uh, (laughs) memory back to high school biology. Uh, They have tiny little flagella um, and they generally have them all around uh, their um, cell and they use them to swim in the water and um, yeah. But uh, arguably the weirdest thing about these tiny beasties actually in general is that they have eggs that are not spherical but rather spheres topped by a chalice-shaped protrusion, which is then surrounded by a ring of small filaments. The researchers suggest that these structures might help the eggs attach to the surface on which they are laid. But if you look at the scanning electron microscope picture of them, they look really weird. And so the new species belongs to the Hufalandi group, um, which all have these tiny chalice-like structures on their eggs. And in fact, Macrobiotis hufalandi was the very first tardigrade to be discovered back in 1834. Now, this is the first new species to be reported from this group in East Asia. In addition, the fact that they mate in the lab is extremely exciting. It is an ideal model to study the sexual reproduction machinery and behavior of tardigrades. He said, we are actually already submitting another paper describing their mating behaviors. So uh, look forward to the paper about tardigrade mating behaviors. (laughs) Um, I think it'll be very interesting. Um, Okay. And with that, we are done for tonight. So uh, do stay tuned for civil politics coming up next. And have a good night and stay safe because the wind is howling out there. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro. And thank you for listening.